last week. We read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. Gospel according to John, sometimes called. But then we went on to not look at the text at all. We just considered the background of this great book. We looked at who the author is, the Apostle John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. This same John also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation, sometimes called the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Then we looked at how John, by the Holy Spirit, considered where his gospel would fit into the grand scheme of redemptive history. Throughout the Old Testament, a Messiah is promised who would come and deliver the Jews, save the world, judge the covenant breakers, and set up his kingdom on earth where he would rule and reign in righteousness forever. John tells us immediately that this Savior, this Christ, this Messiah, is none other than God himself come to dwell among us in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Then we looked at how John used his knowledge of the other inspired gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to give his firsthand account of the life of Jesus, filling in some gaps and emphasizing the divinity of Christ. John makes no apologies for what he's trying to do in his gospel. He tells the reader, this is why I'm writing, so that you might believe. Finally, we looked at the structure of the book. The book is divided into two main parts, the first 12 chapters and the final nine chapters. The first 12 chapters, where we spent most of our time, describe the public ministry of the Lord, and John structures the narrative around seven miracles, turning water to wine, healing the nobleman's son, healing the man at the pool, feeding the 5,000, walking on water, giving sight to the man born blind, and raising Lazarus from the dead. And John uses these miracles, which very importantly he calls signs, as launching points to reveal to the reader who Jesus is. When you're driving down the road, I've said this before, and you see a sign that says Vanderhoof 35, you don't stop at the sign and look for all the buildings because it's just a sign. But it's a sign that gives a real description of where you would find Vanderhoof, 35 kilometers down the road. And so uh, that's exactly what John is saying here. These are real events that took place, but they are pointing to Jesus as the unique, only begotten Son of God. So it's important word that uh, John enjoys using, or enjoys, I don't know if that's the right word, but has chosen to use, inspired by God's Spirit, that these are signs. The final nine chapters deal with what has come to be known as the Passion of Christ, the torture, trial, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of this is bookended. Some of you don't know what a bookend even is. That's becoming... You know, I, for me, I have digital book now that don't have bookends, but uh, bookends are those things you put on a shelf so that they hold the books together. Anyway, it's all bookended by a prologue, which is an introduction, which we find in the first 18 verses of chapter 1, and an epilogue, which is a conclusion, which we find in the final chapter, chapter 21 of John. It is a masterful work. It is a work of divine inspiration and beauty and a work that is more than worthy of our careful consideration. The great reformer, Martin Luther, 
once said that if you master the book of Romans, you are heresy-proof. I would add that if you master the first 18 verses of John, you are heresy-proof. The whole message of the gospel is packed so tightly in these verses that you could spend the rest of your life meditating on them and it would not be wasted time. Some men have. Hundreds, maybe even thousands of books have been written on just these 18 verses. And I believe that there is still work to do. I'm going to do something this morning that I don't normally do, <clears throat> nor will I make a habit of it in the future. And that is to look at the original Greek. I am not a Greek scholar by any stretch of the imagination, nor do I expect that many of you speak or read ancient Greek fluently and comfortably. But John is so careful with every single word in these first five verses of John that I think we would be well served by considering the depth of craftsmanship in these words as they reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ. I will try to make it as simple and straightforward as I am able, but even so, if you don't understand the technicalities of what is being written, I think you can still appreciate the truths that I will try to summarize. So um, I guess having said that, for the men in here and the young men and the boys, they tend to be more uh, detail-oriented. You might enjoy this message more than the ladies or the young women or the girls. I don't know. It's, there's certainly crossover there. but um, So I think it's about time we preach a message at the men this morning. So men, young men, boys, pay attention. I, there's an exam at the end. And if you fail, things aren't looking good for you. I don't know what's going to happen, but it's not going to be good. Uh, ladies, um, just go ahead and visit. Grab a coffee. Enjoy your time. Anyway, no. I, I, oh, they've started. I heard someone visiting. No, that's good. <laughs> I hope there's something in this for everyone. If you look at the, uh, I just thought this was really interesting. Um, that's a manuscript of the Gospel of John, the first page. And um, um, that's, that manuscript has been dated to between 100 AD and 350 AD. And so there's a good chance that this might be a direct copy right from John's original. And so whoever copied this one just copied down John's words. It's called P66. It's just the first page. Uh, P66 contains most of the Gospel of John. So I just thought for those of you that are enjoying, that enjoy historical things, there's a picture of the first page of the Gospel of John in the original uh, New Testament Greek. Let's go ahead and read that in English because that's all Greek to me. Yeah, that's always the joke. Every pastor has to use that. When I just, I didn't want to use it, but I had to. And I've titled today's message, The Logos. And we're going to read and consider John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider your word and some of the most beautiful and powerful uh, words that you inspired for us to consider this morning, we ask that it is by your spirit that you would give us light to understand, but further than that, power to live out the truth that uh, you give us this morning. And so uh, we ask that your spirit would have free reign to point us to Jesus Christ this morning. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. John is entering into the story of Jesus Christ. He's going to tell the story of Jesus' life, what he did, who he was, uh, the words he said. But before he does that, he wants to make it very clear to us who this Jesus is. He doesn't want us to be mistaken in any way as to who he's talking about. And so he lays out these first 18 verses, in, particularly these, the, in particular these first five verses, so that we don't misunderstand who he is talking about. If you have missed last week's message or this message um, and going forward from here, it's going to be very difficult for you to truly understand the Gospel of John until you understand who John is introducing us to in these first few verses. So I encourage you to think about these things carefully. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. And I've called this section, The Eternal Existence of the Logos. First words, NRK, in the beginning. You'll notice right away that the Greek has only two words, whereas in English we have three. In the beginning. In English, the definite article, the word the, is added. And this is a more profound detail than you might think. Greek does have a word for the. John uses it almost right away after this. He says in the beginning was the word, and he uses the word the but he doesn't use it before the word beginning. So without going into the technicalities of definite and indefinite articles in English and in Greek and how they're used, we'll simply say this. John, by leaving out the definite article, the, in the very first phrase, in those very first two words, is saying what could amount to, in the beginning, the word already was. It's not like he came to be there. He already was in the beginning. And that's by leaving out the, the uh, article, the word the there in the original Greek. That's what John is saying. Already at the beginning, the word was there. John is excluding any possibility that the word, who we will later find out is Jesus Christ, came into existence at any point in time. The word always existed from eternity past and will always exist through eternity future. John is immediately declaring that outside of time, 
because this is a time statement in the beginning. There is a fixed reality, a north star, you might say, which John calls ha-logos, the word. Outside of time, there is a fixed reality whom John calls the word. And a quick word of encouragement for the ladies that have already zoned out. No, I'm just kidding. That's, that's so sexist. I don't know how I could even get away with that. Anyway, a quick word of encouragement for all of you that might be struggling to understand some of these details. Just simply this. The Lord Jesus Christ, who died for you, who comes to you in your times of loneliness and desires to comfort you in your times of trial, lives from eternity past. And he loves you with an unmatched, unending love. That brings us to the next few words. In the beginning, then, was the word. Ein ha logos. Logos is almost always translated as word in English with a capital W. It was a loaded term, and John knew it. Both the Hebrew heritage and the Greek heritage flowed together and made use of the idea of logos, word, in philosophy and theology. The word logos itself, as far as we can tell, was first used in this unique way by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, we'll just call him Harry, in about 500 BC. Heraclitus was famous for saying that everything is always changing. Nothing stays the same ever. From the water on the earth moving constantly to the stars in the sky in their courses, everything is always in a state of flux. But he also noticed, in spite of this, that there still remained a kind of order to everything or a cohesiveness which held everything together. He didn't know what to call it, so he described it as logos. Later, other Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle would use this same word to describe the reason and the rationality in any statement of truth. In their minds, Logos was the reason and the rationality which held the whole cosmos together. In Hebrew thought, more akin to where John would have come from and grown up in, Logos was considered to be the word of God, either written, spoken, or even thought. For example, when God said, let there be light, that was the Logos the active, powerful, creative word of God. For the Hebrew, the word of God, the logos, although they had other Hebrew words for it, declared the unchanging and almighty power of God. It is important for us to notice at this point that in both Greek and Hebrew thinking, the logos was impersonal. It was a type of force that simply emanated from the universe or from God. And then John comes along and says, no, 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 no. You've got it all wrong. The Logos, that which holds the universe together, 
that which is the reason, the rationality, the truth, the word of God, the almighty power of the creator is not a mere force or a mere tool of God. He is a person. Not only is he a person, John tells us, but we, he says, the disciples, have seen him and handled him with our hands. To the Greeks and to the Hebrews, John is authoritatively telling them by the Spirit of God that this idea that they had been wrestling with and groping at for centuries, this Logos, they had missed it. And John would reveal to them now who he was and tell the story of his life. Folks, Jesus Christ, by his power, is holding the universe together. Outside of him, there is no reason, no rationality, no truth, no light, and no life. Outside of Christ, everything spiritual, everything physical, descends into complete darkness and chaos. If you want a mere glimpse of what this looks like in schools, remove Christ from schools. You might have people going into schools and shooting a bunch of kids. If you want a mere glimpse of what this looks like in culture, remove Christ from culture. If you want a mere glimpse of what this looks like in, in politics or homes or churches or medicine or science or any other thing, remove Christ from it and you will quickly see. You will see violence instead of peace, tyranny instead of freedom, sickness instead of health, chaos instead of order, death instead of life. The world cannot know, and the Christian sadly has largely forgotten what it is like to live without Christ as the Logos. Again, as a quick aside, for those of you whose eyes have glazed over again, let me give you this word of encouragement. The next time you are outside and look at a blade of grass or the flowing river or even the stars in the sky, remind yourself that the same Jesus that holds all of these things together by his power so that they don't disintegrate or fly off into chaos is the one who holds your life and all of the situations you are facing in his hands. And the word was with God. Kai halagos ein prostontheon. Notice this time that the definite article the is present before the word theon or God, even though the English leaves it out. John is simply making the point that this is the one true God. We might say God the Father. In a way, the fact that in English we capitalize the word God and use it as a proper name serves a similar function to the Greek putting the definite article there. Greek didn't have any such concept as putting a capital at the beginning of a name or anything like that. So they used other types of tools to indicate those things. Perhaps more importantly, though, is the word with. The word was with God or pros, 
in Greek. This is not the word normally used for with. John could have chosen a different word like meta, but inspired by the Holy Spirit, he chose pros, which is sometimes translated unto or toward. It would be awkward English, but we could understand this phrase as saying, and the word was face to face with God the Father. The word was face to face with God the Father. Think of a wedding ceremony. The people that have been invited are sitting with, meta, one another. But the bride and the groom are standing at the front, face to face, pros, one another. There is an intimacy about this word that is attempting to capture the relationship between the unbegotten father and the only begotten son. Let's just pause for a moment and just recognize how hard the language is working to give us the idea of God as a trinity. In Colossians, for example, Paul writes that Christ is the image of the invisible God. I don't know if you can wrap your brain around that, but I, I don't have much success. I, I just trust that it's true. And the writer of Hebrews says that Christ is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's substance. Jesus himself said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one. Later on, when John is introducing us to the Holy Spirit, he again is straining the language, saying that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have existed eternally as three persons in one substance, in a relationship from eternity of pure and perfect love. And he goes on to say that Jesus invites us, even us, as his created beings, to enter into that eternal love relationship that was exclusive to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, which they have shared from eternity past and will always share. And he invites us to enter that relationship through the cross. It is a staggering thought, and I'm sure I'm doing a staggeringly poor job of trying to convey this thought to you. Another word of encouragement for those of you that are on the edge of sleep. Life is defined by short but powerful moments. Most of the time, we're just living our day-to-day -day realities. But every now and again, something very brief happens, but it's very powerful. The death of a loved one. A choice we make financially that goes either this way or that way. These moments define the direction of life. The most important of these moments is the moment we trust Jesus Christ and believe that dying on the cross, he died for me and my sin. At that moment, we have been delivered from the power of darkness to the kingdom of the Son of God's love, from death to life. Final phrase, and God was 
the word, final phrase of this particular group of words here. And God was the word. Kaitheos ein halagos. You'll notice right away, maybe, if you're really paying attention, you will have noticed right away that the order of the words is reversed in our English translations. In Greek, we have God was the word, if we were to translate it directly. In English, we have the word was God. The reason for this is very technical. It has to do with how nouns are used in uh, Greek as subjects and objects. And I can see your eyes glazing over already. So we won't get into it other than to say this. The English translation that you have in your hands is exactly correct. In Greek, it's quite beautiful visually because we have this reflection. I think there's a screen that'll come up next, Josiah. We have this reflection of Logos, God. Oh, maybe I left it out. There, Logos, God, and then God, Logos, which is what John is trying to do, create a reflection there. And so that's the exact point he is trying to make about who Jesus is. He is the exact image of the true God. There's way more to it than that, but any more, and I think my brain will turn to porridge. Okay, that's verse 1. I hope you get the, the sense of the importance of this text and how careful God is being through the hand of John in introducing us to this Messiah, the Savior of the world. Verse 2, this one was in the beginning with God. Simply emphasized what John has already said in verse 1, but he is driving home the fact of the personhood of the Logos. It's not just a force like Luke used the force. No, this is a person. Brings us to verse 3, which I've entitled The Creative Power of the Logos. Reads, All things through him came to be. Apart from him came to be not one single thing. The Greek is much more straightforward from this point on. So uh, you can take a breath. We're almost done with any Greek. We'll have little blips here and there. But for, from now on, we're in English. So you're welcome. So what I'll try to simply give you is a bit of a more literal word-for-word -word rendering of the Greek into English, even though that may make it feel sort of awkward at times. And then we'll just make a few comments on what John is trying to teach us about Jesus. If I were to attempt to translate verse 3 directly, it would read something like this. All things through him came to be or came into existence. Apart from him came into existence or came to be not one single blessed thing. It's very emphatic there. Folks, everything you see, right down to the smallest particle, and everything you don't see, angels and such, has stamped on it, as it were, made by Jesus. In Colossians 1.17, Paul writes of Christ, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
That brings us to the final couple verses, verses 4 and 5, which I've called the life-giving authority of the Logos. In him was life. In the first couple of verses in Genesis, the text begins by saying that God created the universe. In the beginning, God created. Then instantly and dramatically, the focus zooms in on the earth where God is going to prepare earth for life. And the creation of life is consummated by the creation of man in the image of God. So here in the Gospel of John, and he's very aware of the first few words of Genesis, the text has just finished saying that the Logos, the Word, Jesus, has created all things. And then the focus zooms in on one particular thing that he has created that is in him, and that thing is life. There is something unique and special about this thing we call life. Life is one of those things that we all know what it is. And yet, if I were to bring you to the front and face all of these people and say, please give us a definition of life, you would probably start stuttering. So I can say, what is life? And you go ahead and tell everybody what life is, even though we all know what it is. It's a challenge, to say the very least. Just as an example, in biology, there are all sorts of evidences that one can look at to detect if there is life, but life itself remains one of those great mysteries, physically speaking, that is very difficult to pin down, maybe impossible. Without getting into boring details, I'll give you this illustration. Down at Rice University in uh, Houston, Texas, there is a very committed Christian professor named Dr. James Tour, And he has invested a huge portion of his life and resources into investigating the origins of life from non-life. He goes as far as to challenge atheistic professors that he will allow them to have any materials they want in a test tube every single component that would make a living cell. <clears throat> he even says something like, go ahead and put a frog in a blender. Now, I don't recommend that. But he says, go ahead and take, take this thing. Everything you need, absolutely. And I don't care what you do to it. You can heat it and cool it and zap it and stir it and shake it and freeze it and thaw it and burn it, whatever you want to do. And you will never, ever get a living cell. Because there is something about life, sometimes called vitality or vital force, that is absent in non-living material. Many of us have been in a room with a person when they passed away. Something that was once there is suddenly gone. And we can't really put our finger on what it is. That is what we might call life, and it is to be found exclusively in Jesus Christ. Every cell, every blade of grass, every tree, every animal, every human being that has life does so because life is found only in the living one, 
the Word, Jesus Christ, in whom is life. Life takes the rot and the disorder and the leftovers and creates from it something orderly and useful and beautiful, like an apple tree, for example. The difference between a place like Earth and a place like the moon, one teeming with life everywhere you look, and one utterly desolate and uninhabitable, is the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that important to us this morning? The author, John, after all, doesn't use the word here for physical life, bios. Instead, he uses the word zoe, which is more like the essence of life, the life principle. Well, I believe he uses this word because something nearly identical of what we've been talking about with physical life could be said for spiritual life. Just think back to the apple tree. If you are outside of Jesus Christ on the moon, as it were, you are spiritually dead, as surely as a body without a heartbeat is dead. Like the scientist with a test tube full of blended frog, you can try to manipulate what's in front of you in every imaginable way spiritually, and you will not produce life. Because life is found exclusively in Jesus Christ. The passage goes on to say, And the life was the light of men. I think it is worth noting here that John says that the life of Christ is the light of men. Not Jews only, and not believers only, but of men. That word doesn't mean males, by the way. It means mankind. People everywhere. All people everywhere. Whether you believe it or not, even your next breath is in the hand of Christ. There is not a single person anywhere that does not have access to the light and life of Christ in some way, shape, or form. For many, it is simply the fact that they are created in the image of God and that they are self-aware, they're conscious, and they're moral beings. But for those of us that have responded to the gospel and have trusted Christ as Savior, we enter that life, that light, which shines eternally with his grace and his truth. Final phrase, I believe. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. It is here in verse 5, the final verse, of course, for today, that we are first introduced to this idea that something went terribly wrong. The light shines where? In the darkness. Something about this light, which was the light of men, was marred in man, corrupted somehow. We, of course, recognize this as the fall. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of the tree of which they were told not to eat, darkness entered. Darkness entered the heart of man in the form of sin. And since that time, 
Every person that has ever been born, Jesus accepted, has been born a sinner. And it is in our very nature to sin. And we do the things that are in our nature. We sin. That's why, after all, God has to give us a new nature. A nature that longs to be obedient to the word of Christ. I'm so thankful that the verse doesn't end there. Rather, it ends like this. The darkness did not comprehend it. I don't know if that word comprehend is emphatic enough here. This same Greek word could be rendered seize or take hold of. In view of the context, when I look at what John is saying, we might say something like, the darkness did not wrestle it down and pin it. In the end, it is in the very nature of the Logos, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be victorious. It's in his very nature. Life finds a way. Go into a room full of darkness and flick on the light switch. Darkness flees and there is found no place for it where the light shines. That is our position. If we are found to be in Christ by faith, we are operating from a position of life, light, and victory. And therefore, we should never be ashamed of the gospel of Christ. To conclude this morning, I just want to read the first five verses again, but I'm going to put my own emphasis on it. I'm not saying that mine is a better translation. It is certainly not. I'm not saying anything of that sort. But this is just a way of reading these verses and, and adding some of the understanding of the text, just, to, just adding some of the insights that we have considered this morning. In the beginning, the word was already there. The word was face to face with God the Father. And the word was God. This same one was already in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not one single thing exists that came into being. In him was the very essence of life. And this life was the light of all mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not wrestle it down. So John is introducing us to, uh, to this one. Without these statements, some of the things that Jesus is going to say in the coming chapters just simply won't make sense to us. Before Abraham was, I am. How can we understand that apart from understanding who Jesus truly is in these few verses? So I have good news for you. This is by far the most difficult section of the entire gospel. And it's not even close. We will be looking, we will not be looking this in depth at any other section of the book. But I truly believed it was important to consider, however briefly, how careful the Holy Spirit was with every single word so that we could understand who Jesus is 
before we enter the story of his life on earth. Without the insight of these words, we cannot possibly make sense of some of the things Jesus says and does in the next 20 chapters. The theology in these first five verses has shaped the Christian understanding of who Jesus is for 2,000 years now. And so I think it behooves the Christian to consider it as closely as we are able, as we have tried to do just briefly this morning. Now, what basic lessons can we take from this text into this week? Number one, the Christian faith rests on the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Logos of eternity, the only begotten Son of the unbegotten Father who manifests the truth of God in human form. Our lives, pay attention, our lives will never make sense until they are rooted in this one who is the centerpiece of not just history, but of all eternity. Number two, the Christian faith affirms that every detail of our existence can only rightly be understood in the light of the inscription made by Jesus who is the foundation and reality of the deepest meaning in the lives of men. Finally, number three, the Christian faith commits each one of us to the truth that every person who has ever existed, does exist, or will exist, carries within him or her, <coughs> her the image of God however fractured and however humble. And therefore, it is incumbent upon us as Christians to live according to that truth within ourselves and with every single person we encounter. Made by Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we have looked at some things difficult to understand this morning. It is only by your spirit we can even begin to understand. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we ask that your spirit would give us the understanding we need to, to draw closer to our Savior, to recognize that this one, this Jesus that walked among us, that lived among us, that suffered and died and rose again, is God from all eternity to recognize that he left all that behind to come down here because he loves us. Help us to recognize that without the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing about life makes sense. But with him, we are absolutely secure. And so let us live in this reality this week, not only within ourselves, but with every person we encounter as well. Remind us that every person is made by Jesus. All these things we ask and pray and thank you for in the name of Jesus. Amen.